The Pacific Garden Mission was not always called the Pacific Garden Mission. Now, I know that's a shock to you, and you're all going, wow, really? Because you all know exactly what the Pacific Garden Mission is. Before it was called the Pacific Garden Mission, it was called the Pacific Beer Garden. <laughs> and at the suggestion of Dwight L. Moody, General, excuse me, Colonel George Clark and his wife Sarah decided to change the name. It was a mission that was founded in 1882 in Chicago, a rescue mission. Its purpose was to reach out. It was in the slums. It was in Whiskey Row. Its purpose was to reach out to the drunks, the homeless, the prostitutes, everybody who needed help. And they'd actually started it five years before that, but it had become, they'd have so much success so many people that were helping off the streets that they had to move to a bigger building. It was life-changing. This mission was really making the lives of people different because of Christ. What I want to talk about this morning is lives that are transformed because of Christ. In fact, I want to talk about this mission. I want to talk about some of the people that this mission impacted and how their lives were changed. Because what the Apostle Paul is teaching in Ephesians chapter two is that coming to Christ is radically transformative. And I'm not sure that is a message that really hits home in our Western Christian culture. I'm not sure it always hits home with me but I know it needs to hit home with all of us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, we ask that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, that every person here would know the encouragement and the conviction of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that by, by hearing and studying your word, we would be changed that it would not just be more words, one more lesson, one more thing for us to go, that was kind of cool, but that it would sink into who we are. Lord, by the power of your spirit, work this morning. In Christ's holy name, amen. If you would, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two, we've gone through all of chapter one. We kick off today in chapter 2, and if you look at that very first verse, you will see a strange word that your English teachers usually tell you, do not begin the sentence with this word. It is the word and, and it actually is the Greek word that starts this chapter. It starts with and, which you should know by now, and I've said this numerous times, chapter divisions, verse divisions, they're all added later. And sometimes the division can hide something. Any sentence that starts with and, you know it has something to do with what came before it. And all those things we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, the amazing spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Paul praying that the Spirit would enlighten their hearts so that they would know those blessings 
They wouldn't just be things they think about, but they would be things that change their lives. And that, that Christ has been given to the church as our head. And the fullness of God is there within the church because of Christ. He ends that by saying, and. Here's the and. And you, and he's speaking directly to the Ephesians, but let's just assume maybe it applies to us too. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And I need to talk about a theology that Paul has. In trespasses and sins. Now, here's what we've heard throughout chapter one. In Christ. He said it a dozen times. In Christ, in Christ Jesus, in him, in Jesus Christ. Now it's in trespasses and sins. Here's how Paul thinks about these things. All right, I am not from Texas, but I am here now. Been here for a long time. All my kids are here. There is a culture in Texas, yes or no? Absolutely, there is a culture in Texas. If you grow up here, I mean, my kids, they've kind of got that Texas drawl thing going with some of their words. They have one-syllable words that are two syllables. I don't know how that happens, but it's Texas. And Texas culture is very, very different than North Dakota culture. Anybody from North Dakota? Seen movies with North Dakota in them? (laughs) It's a different culture there. All right, when Paul says, in Christ, in trespasses and sins, he has in mind that kind of concept. You need to think of a culture, a place, a realm, a geography. He is saying that there's this thing that you live in and out of. We live in Texas culture, and we live out of it. It's impacting us. Many of the things we do, the ways we talk, the things we value, they're part of this Texas culture. Paul says they're in trespasses and sins. That's what they're in, and it's what they're living out of, as if that is their overwhelming culture. And he says they're dead in it. And here's what that means, two things. Number one, In trespasses and sins, they are separated from the life of God. They are not connected to God. That culture, which is gonna say more in a minute, those values, all of those things, they are separate from God. And number two, they cannot get themselves out of it. They are dead in it. Now, I've been to a number of funerals. I've done a couple of them. Not one time has the body sat up in the casket. Because when you're dead, you're dead. You can't do a lot. Paul says, you were in this realm called in trespasses and sins. And you were dead in it. You were separated from God and you were stuck. Now, here's that realm. He gives some descriptions. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That means you lived. That was your course. That's what you were doing. That was your life. The first thing he says is following the course of this world. There is an entire system of belief, of ideology, of thought, of value that is part of this world that is not part of God. 
And it is a course. It's, it's a course for life. If you follow those values, you will go a certain direction. He says, you were in trespasses and sins, which means by nature you followed that course. Those values, that system, that ideology, you followed that. And on top of that, you followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All right, as an image, hey, don't think of this literally, because it may or may not, it, well, it's not really literal. We know this scientifically, it's not literal. But think of this image, okay? You have earth, you have the space between earth and heaven, or the, the space, the sky, and then you have up there. They viewed it as earth, and then this space here is where the spirits were at, and then the heavenlies were there. That's where God was at. And so the prince of the power of the air is the devil who rules this spectrum here. Now, I just want you to think, um, geographically, proximity-wise, what's closer to earth, heaven or this space? This space. And so the prince of the power of the air, or the devil, is also influencing what's happening here. And when you are in trespasses and sins, not only do you follow the course of this world, but the course set by the prince of the power of the air. All that is part of it. Keep going. Among whom we, Paul just got personal. He was saying you, but now it's we. He was part of this. Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, craving, uh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind. All right, now I want to put this together for you. All right, flesh. Please do not think of flesh as this physical thing that we're in because that will lead you to the idea that somehow this is bad. The flesh is not bad. It is not inherently evil. It is the way in which God created us and the way we will be in eternity. There is a reason we're getting a resurrected body. Right, we do not have a dualism as so many religions do as if this is bad and the non-physical is good. That's not what he means by flesh. Flesh is that which is separate from God that makes decisions separate from God. So that, he talks about carrying out the desires of the body. You were made with desires. God gave them to you. You have very legitimate desires for love, and for acceptance, for sex, for lots of things, you were made for this. But what happens when the flesh is carrying out the desires that God gave to you separate from God? You distort what God made you to be. The flesh is taking this system of the world, the values of the prince of the power of the air, and then distorting all of these good desires God has given us in our lives. So that now, it's not love, it's lust. That's what happens when the flesh is there. Then he says this. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now I want to ask this question. Is it really that bad? 
I mean, the way Paul's describing this, it sounds really awful. This is the whole world. Like everybody is stuck in this trespasses and sins and following these corrupted desires and the course of the world and the devil. And is it really that bad? And I would argue this is one of the areas where we, especially living in Frisco, living in America, us middle white class, middle white class, it's a white class, middle class, upper middle class, wherever, we gotta struggle with this. Because I would guess that the majority of us we have never been raging alcoholics who beat our kids and wives. I would guess that the majority of us have never been like bank robbers and we're not felons and we're not drug addicts and we're not all of these things that we tend to think of. Right? All right, let's set that aside for a moment and let me acknowledge something. There are non-believers that do good things in the world. There are non-believers that are sometimes better people than believers. Just because you've accepted Christ doesn't suddenly make you the best. Like everything's good now. Like we, there are Christians that are just worse human beings than some people who don't know Christ. But this is bigger than all of that. Hey, this is about a system that the world is a part of. A system that produces a very high suicide rate right now. Escapism into drugs and alcohol that's an epidemic. Wars, poverty, starvation, terrorism. All of this is connected to a system. It is bigger than an individual action that you do. However, you need to understand that your individual actions are bigger than that single action, they too are part of this bigger ideology. You play into it, you support it. When as a believer you continue to live as if you're in trespasses and sins, it's like taking your cowboy hat to North Dakota. It doesn't fit, but you can still do it. Right? And you are supporting a much bigger system that's the system. And by the way, I would say that though we often are not part of the more blatant sins, how many of us are way too materialistic? Do you know that's a system of the world? To get more things, and yet how many of us are like that? How many of us are willing to sacrifice things for things, but not always for people. Do you know that pleasure, while nothing inherently wrong with it, we often seek it in the system of the world. We are willing to sacrifice things, including our own integrity, other people. We're willing to do things, especially if, and I would say this may be one of the number one values in the church, sadly, as long as nobody knows about it. As long as I don't get caught. By the way, that's a value of the world too. 
we are not immune to this. We still at times are going after the wrong things that are part of that world system, part of the prince of the power of the air. Now, what Paul says is that we're dead in it. Henry Monroe was born in 1853. Born to an actual, he was born to a good family. Guy had a lot of potential. However, when he was younger, he decided that instead of following in the path of his family, instead of using their money or anything else, he wanted to join the circus. Now, the circus in the 1800s was not the circus of today. Although some of the circus of today is still pretty bad. He joined the circus, and by the mid-1880s, he was a drunk, he was a gambler, he'd been in and out of prison, he was a counterfeiter, he'd robbed a bank, and he was an absolute mess. He was dead in trespasses and sins, except he knew it. He knew he couldn't get out of this. At one time, he said, I was sick, I was jobless, I was hopeless. And one day in jail, while he was in jail, Sarah Clark, one of the founders of that mission, came and visited him in jail. And she shared the good news of Jesus with him and said that he could have a different life. And he wanted to believe it, but he was so screwed up that he just couldn't accept it. However, it did something in him. He had not talked to his mom, who was a believer, had not talked to his mom in over a decade. He figured at this point she had rejected him, wanted nothing to do with him, much like the rest of the world because he was such scum. He wrote her a letter, heard back from her, went and visited her, and the only description that he gives is he met her at the door and he wept in her arms still didn't accept Christ, but it moved him closer. It wasn't until he went to find Sarah Clark at the Pacific Garden Mission, where he listened to Colonel George Clark, who was a terrible preacher, by his own admission and everybody else. In fact, he was terribly nervous every time he got up there. But the Spirit had called he and his wife to do this, and he preached about dying to the old life and rising to a new life. And Henry Monroe went forward and said, I want that. And at the end, he would say this, I was sick, I was jobless, I was hopeless, and here's the key, but God came to me. And that, look back at your text. So by the way, verses one through seven are one sentence in Greek. It is Paul just going crazy, much like he did in 3 through 14. Look at verse 4. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. That also is exactly where that is in Greek. But God. That is the pivot point. God came to Henry Monroe. God came to the Ephesians. And here's what happened being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Again, these superlatives that you saw in chapter one. He doesn't just have mercy. He is rich in mercy. He doesn't just love. He has a great love that makes him act. And I would say this, 
for this next section here, what I'm about to read. I think Paul, in writing this, was overwhelmed by the great mercy of God when he wrote the next thing. Hey, remember, he switched it to we. He's talking about himself, and he's going through this whole thing. As he's going through this, again, he's not stopping every phrase to explain things. For Paul, it is, and we were dead in the trespasses of our sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And I think that is a moment that Paul just, even when we were dead in our trespasses, at our most vile moment, that is when the mercy and the, the rich grace and love of God comes in. When have you been at your worst? That is when it comes in. And for Paul to just stop, and I don't even, and I told a friend of mine earlier, I, I used to read this as nothing but another theological statement. It's like I needed to stop and go, okay, even when we were dead in our trespasses, now dead means this and transgressions means this and blah, 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 blah. I don't think that's what he was doing. I think he was going, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Again, it's an outburst, it's an exclamation. You were made alive. When you were dead in your sins, you were made alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, this is so beautiful, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It was not enough for God to be kind to you now. He wanted you to know his immeasurable kindness for all eternity. That's how much he wanted to give it. Here's the change, and this is what we need to focus in on for a minute. Made alive in Christ Jesus. We have a theology that we use quite often in the church. We tell, especially children, would you like to invite Jesus into your heart? Everybody heard that? You may have even heard it at one point for yourself. Somebody may have said, would you like to invite Jesus into your heart? And you pray the prayer and they say, we often, often think of Jesus being in us. I would challenge you to go through the New Testament and just see how many times it talks about Jesus being in us. It is very, very rare. Do you know what's all over the New Testament? Especially the writings of Paul. Us being in him. Us being in him. Not this individual idea of I invite Jesus to come into my heart, but that something dramatic has happened and I have gone from in trespasses and sins to in Christ. And all of us have come into Christ. Now, think of what that means. Think about what it necessitates. If over here, 
in trespasses and sins, the culture is one that has the system of the world setting my course, the prince of the power of the air, the flesh who's in cooperation with them. What happens when I am pulled out of that and I am made alive in Christ? It is an entirely new culture. If you ride your horse to North Dakota with your cowboy hat and spurs, you're not gonna fit in. You cannot take the flesh into Christ. And I want you to recognize over here, you know that corporate nature? I'm telling you that your sins are part of something bigger. Guess what? When you are in Christ, everything is something bigger. You are raised with him. You are seated with him. I tell you this next statement not to guilt you or anything else, but I want you to honestly consider this. Every time you align yourself with the world, you are aligning Christ with the world because you are in him. Every time you rebel against God, you bring Christ and me. And everybody in this room, and everybody who's part of the church, because we are all in Christ together. There is something very, very corporate about who we are. He made, he did not just rescue you from hell to put you in heaven. He rescued you from a life in sins to being alive in Christ. Now that means something. I'll tell you what it means in just a second. In 1870, a man named Mel Trotter was born. Unlike Henry, Mel Trotter was not born into a good family. Well, it was a half good family. His father was an alcoholic bartender. His mother was a strong Christian. Well, he went the way of his father. Little education. By the age of 19, Mel Trotter was a gambling alcoholic. He got married two years later, gambled away quite a, so much money from the family that they were lacking the bare necessities of life. He then went on a 10-day binge drink. He came back home to find his two-year-old son had passed away. He immediately committed to his wife, I will never drink again. Within that day, he started drinking again. Because when you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you cannot lift yourself out. That day, he eventually abandoned his family because he felt so worthless and he was ruining them. He became homeless and he got to the point where there was one thing he could do. He could just end it. He was walking to drown himself in a lake when he passed by the Pacific Garden Mission. And he was pulled into the doors and a man named Henry Monroe, a former alcoholic gambler, shared, you can die to this life. Not defeat it, not commit not to do it, die to it. And you can be raised in Christ 
to a new life. And that day, Mel Trotter accepted that invitation. He would go get a job, he'd be reunited to his family, his entire life would change. But God. However, why? Why does God do this? Let me tell you what it's not. Unequivocally, hear this. You and I have not been saved to be trophies in heaven. We were not taken from being dead to being alive just so we could sit on a shelf as God's prized possession. There was a reason he did what he did. Look back at your text. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, and the this is this entire thing, being brought from here to here, that was not you. You could never have done that. He did it. Henry Monroe knew he couldn't do it. Mel Trotter knew he couldn't do it. We cannot do it. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Why did he give this gift? Not as a result of work so that no, man, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus, there it is again, for good works. Which, this is awesome, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And here's the cool thing. God not only said, I know you're dead, but I'm going to raise you to life with Christ. Oh, wait, what do I do with them now? Oh, I got them here, and they're alive in Christ, but oh, I'm stumped here. No, they were prepared beforehand. He had this all in mind. When you were rescued from being dead in your trespasses and sins, God wasn't going, okay, well, either I'm just gonna send you up to sit on a cloud for a while, or I don't know what to do with you. No, he rose you in Christ so that the good works he had, you could do them. Do you understand that when you are doing good, you are doing divine work? You were actually rescued for that purpose. I've talked about two men today. Um, well, a couple more than that, actually. Four people. You probably don't know any of them. You will know this one. Billy Sunday. Everybody heard that name? Even if you're not sure who he is, you probably heard the name. Professional baseball player from 1883 to 1890. A guy that was loved in the three cities he went to. Well, not as much in the last one, but most of them and who was known for stealing bases. Not the greatest hitter, he had one good year, not the greatest hitter, but known for stealing bases. Well, in 1886, he's with a few other ball players there in the streets of Chicago, and there's a wagon that is pulled up to do a street rally. And he starts listening to the music, and these hymns remind him of the hymns his mother used to sing to him when he was young. And so he listens to him for a while. And as he's listening, a man comes down off that wagon, walks up to the curb he's sitting on and says, I want to invite you to come to the Pacific Garden Mission where you're going to hear stories of people who were drunks, who were gamblers, people who left their families, prostitutes, 
felons who have had total life transformations because of Jesus of Nazareth. And Billy Sunday at first thought, what in the world? But he decided something in him. He decided to go. That man was Henry Monroe. Went to the mission, listened to the message. First message that he heard, same kind of message. You can die to your old way of life and you can be raised to a new way of life in Christ. But Billy Sunday understood something that sadly, I don't know how many Christians get. He understood what that meant. He understood that that, and he, and he says this in a, in a biography, he understood that that meant a total change of who he is. That he had to turn his personal agenda over to this Jesus of Nazareth, and he didn't know if he was ready to do that. However, he would come back night after night after night until finally, one evening, that same message preached by that same man, Henry Monroe, got to him. And he would get up, and he would walk the aisle, and it would be reported that people thought he was one of the drunkards because of the way he was moving, because they had lots of drunkards that would go forward and, you know, and receive, but he wasn't drunk. He, was, he described in his own words, he was so overwhelmed understanding what he was doing, the commitment that he was making, that he was shaking going forward, taking just small steps like his legs were led to get this decision of Christ. He went forward, and as he stood there silently, Sarah Clark walked up and put her arm around him, and she whispered to him, God loves you. Jesus died for you, and he wants you to love him. And on the other side, Henry Mingo walked over, and they knelt together and prayed. And this was not just that sinner's prayer that does nothing. Billy Sunday, it changed his life. This man would go on, he would be offered a contract in 1991 at the end of his career for $3,500 a year to play professional baseball. He would turn it down so that he could go work at the YMCA as an assistant secretary for $83 a month because God called him to go serve. And at the YMCA, he was visiting the poor and the sick, he was praying with people, he was helping with these rallies to rescue people, and he would go on to become, as some of you might know, the most successful evangelist outside of Billy Graham. He would preach to 100 million people over his career, with approximately a million people coming to Christ. And this man, in his preaching, and this is where I'm saying he got that this was more than just going to heaven. This was about life now, good deeds, doing things because God has saved me for it. He would preach against child labor, against Jim Crow. He would preach for women's suffrage. I mean, he was out on the front lines preaching social issues that could get him in trouble. Now, he became very wealthy. I mean, when you preach to that many people and you're taking up offerings where you got that many people, you're getting wealthy. And there is no doubt the guy had a lot of money. 
But here's what was said by people taking care of his business. He was always honest. He didn't cheat people. He was very good with money. And he gave away, forgive my French, buttloads of money. Because this man knew he was not rescued just to go to church. He wasn't rescued just so he could be rescued. Just to be, my last phrase, a trophy in heaven. I mean, church, if we have been taken from being dead in trespasses and we have been raised to life in Christ, we were raised for a reason. We were raised to serve. We were raised to sacrifice. We were raised to be like him who gave his life. And even as Billy Sunday did, Henry Monroe in 1992 he took, 1892, sorry, 1992 make him really old. 1892, he took over the Pacific Garden Mission. And he ran that thing until he died in 1916. Lived in the slums, rescuing alcoholics and gamblers and prostitutes and anybody he could reach. Today, that mission still exists. They have a giant facility now. They house a hundred homeless people. I, sorry, a thousand homeless people. A hundred. A lot of people do that. A thousand homeless people. Mel Trotter, he went on to found a different mission. It still exists today. In 2016, the mission that Mel Trotter founded, they gave out 147,000 meals and specifically, they say it this way, with love and dignity. Because they are not just about giving sustenance, they're about giving dignity to people. They gave housing, and not like a room, they actually found housing, helped people get housing. 523 men, women, and children. And they were able to get employment for 130 people who didn't have jobs. That is living the kingdom. That is fulfilling what he saved us for. Doing something with our faith. We were not saved just to be saved. The kingdom of God is not something that we just brag about, talk about, debate. It is something we live because we are raised in Christ. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, I ask you right now that anybody in this room who doesn't truly know Christ, that you would come to them and you would extend the same mercy and grace and love that you've given to so many of us and that they might know right now that they are loved by you, not because of anything they've done, not despite anything they've done, but because of your great love. 
And Lord, for each person here who is struggling with their value, with their worth, please, Holy Spirit, fill us that we might know that love, that great love and kindness of God to come to us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. And finally, God, may we be a church, corporately and individually, who begins or continues wherever we are to live for the kingdom, that we would be people that see ourselves as alive in Christ Jesus for the works that you have prepared beforehand, that we might step into them and serve and sacrifice and love people who need to be loved, that we would be with the lonely, that we would sacrifice where we need to help others. God, let us be those people. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.